My name is Philippa Ramos. I'm a writer and an editor, and I'm the curator of uh, Animalesque Across Species and Beings, which is just opening at the pub. So let's think a bit about that title, Animalesque. Why Animalesque and this idea of becoming animal? In the beginning, um, the Bildmuseet in Umia, where the show was initially um, presented, um, proposed that we would have a simpler title, which would be Animal. And my counter-proposal, which they accept, was to um, think about animalesque. Animalesque being uh, the suffix esque being standing for what is animal-like, what resembles or what could almost be animal. Also raising an invitation for us to understand what it is to be an animal, what it is to behave like an animal. So animalesque is exactly an invitation for a potential transformation or an imagination of what it is to be another, both another animal or another life form. So it's a show that is inviting for us to conceive the transformation possibilities within this notion of, of the animal. On the one hand, uh, an invitation for us to discover our own being animals in the world and sharing the world with other life forms. And there are some works in the exhibition that stand very close in this, in this frontier between the human and the animal. Um, and on, on the other, um, to also understand the transformation possibilities of other beings assuming behaviors and um, having existing in a way that generally we claim to be human, being that of adopting language or communicating or and so on and so forth. So it is really an invitation to, to think our mode of existing um, as a species among others in, in the world. And knowing the ideas and the work that's gone into this show, what do you think are the key messages that you'd like visitors to come away from seeing this exhibition? The exhibition can be can be read and visited across different layers. The first of them um, is uh, a small survey of contemporary artists who are um, engaging and dealing with the figures, the bodies, the ideas of animals. So it is an exhibition that features a series of um, animal, animals represented in art. Um, but it's more than just an exhibition about animals. Um, this is an exhibition that is looking at the ways throughout the past decades until the present in which artists have um, approached animal figures and animal subjects and animal behaviours and animal histories as well to reflect about key issues about the times in which they, they are and were living in being issues as diverse as those of uh, the histories of, of colonialism, um, the histories of uh, uh, women's struggles and um, the struggles for women's rights, to general topics that deal with um, 
social justice and environmental justice. Uh, two other works in which there is a clear um, desire to raise awareness for the ways in which animals exist, communicate, and to their rights and, and modes of existence in the world. I mean, it's extraordinary to get um, uh, such a fantastic range of artists in the same space. And I think this idea, um, this idea of crossing over and transformation, I, I was kind of interested in, I could see now that we've installed the works, you know, the kind of fertile crossing grounds and between the different artists. But what, I mean, what's it like, basically, to get that many artists working in the same kind of big gallery space like this? Uh, it's a jungle. <laughs> in, it is also a way that is inviting the works to coexist with other works. It has been a challenge because the, the exhibition has 17 artists. And despite the fact that the space, well, the level floor, the level four of the Baltic is, is very big and, and is also has a very interesting relation between the floor and the height, and it can also be visited from above. Um, so, but despite this generosity of, of space, it is also um, it, everything becomes more complicated when you think that many of the works are time-based, rely on sound, and uh, either by being films and videos or by actually being audio pieces. So this is also about coexisting, and a large part of our effort in the show has exactly been in trying to understand how to tune these works and how to assure that there is a respectful, um, let's say, a ecological manner in which these different works come together and speak to one another while also leaving their space to exist individually because many of the works are also uh, very present and have a very strong um, both physical and, and, and mental um, appeal and so how can we respect their strength, their individuality, while also establishing threads and modes of dialogue between, between themselves. And um, so I guess the big, the big challenge was exactly to um, show these works in the best possible conditions um, and on the one hand allowing them to create dialogues with one another that are not necessarily sequential in the sense this is not an exhibition where you lead from one place to the other. You actually, and I think each visitor will have a different experience of, of the exhibition because you can choose where to go. There's not exactly an imposition of a beginning and an end, it's more a flow. And this flow will exactly create different modes of dialogue and different associations that the visitors are, are free and are invited to. to I mean, you can't come into the exhibition without seeing the extraordinary women artists that are being presented here. I mean, artists that you've worked with before, like Joan Jonas, but also just to be able to present something like the Mary Beth Edelson. In a way, there's this sort of, um, there's this sort of uh, super interest in just making sure that, that, there's, that that's um, a very active part of the way that it's been curated. One of the challenges to start conceiving this exhibition was um, something that I had very clear since the beginning that I wanted the show that crossed different generations. So it wasn't only a show of artists working in the past, let's say in the 70s or in the 80s, and it wasn't only a show featuring younger artists who are starting to be more active in the present, but I was actually trying to bring together different generations 
and um, presenting the ways in which certain struggles, certain ideas have been continuously approached throughout our recent histories. And so one of the, I would say, defining presences in Animalesque is um, a group. I mean, they are a group because we brought them together, but it's a, a group of, let's say, older female artists who were active in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, until the present, and who, in different geographies and with very different media and technique, have collaborated sometimes with animals or have depicted or have adopted animal forms to express their engagement in women's struggles. And these works we can see from um, a very iconic wall piece, which is Mary Beth Edelson's um, untitled Wall Collage, which is a work that ranges, it actually creates a mini history of her practice because it ranges from 1972 until 2011. And in this work, she assembled her friends, her peers, her, the artists she was surrounded by, um, all female, and she paid tribute to them by turning them into different creatures, birds, insects, spiders, um, mythological creatures, goddesses, and just highlighting how co collaboration and mutual influence and dialogue and friendship were fundamental to establish a, a network of, of peer practitioners, all of them women. Um, then. Similarly, there's the case of, of Joan Jonas, and by coincidence, Joan Jonas and Mary Beth Edelson li live in the same building in New York. They've been living in Soho since the 1960s there. And uh, Joan Jonas, who throughout her career has been collaborating with her pet dogs. And when I say collaborating, what I mean is that she's been singing with the dogs, performing with the dogs, so she has exactly triggering a series of collaborative practices with the different dogs she has had. And in this uh, video work that we have, which is Barking from 1972, she is actually using a video camera to follow her dog, who was her dog Zina, who is barking and taking her to the forest. And she's using the camera and collaborating with the dog to extend what she can see or hear, because both camera and dog see and hear more than she does. And the person who is following the dog, because Joan Jonas is holding the camera, is actually choreographer, dancer, Simon Forti, who uh, is also part of the exhibition. And not by chance, we decided to place her drawing uh, in which is a drawing where she um, repeats the gesture of a bear clawing a tree, but using a pencil to do so, next to Joan Jonas's barking. And then we have other uh, female artists whose work was also looking at modes of territorial occupation and, um, let's say, we could, of colonial practices in the North. Um, the north of Europe. One of, of them is the late artist Pierre Arke, who is, was born in Greenland, and throughout her work, she departed from personal histories to reflect about the geopolitical relations that Greenland has had with Denmark 
and with the occupation of Greenland by, by Denmark. And here we have a video called Tupica Losaurus, which is a, uh, a history of a dinosaur that was found in Greenland and that uh, which is stored in the Natural History Museum in Copenhagen and which the Danish have claimed the, the ownership of. And we have um, a Swedish artist called Britta Marakatlaba who became more famous after her participation in Documenta 14, uh, both in Greece and in, in Germany, in Kassel, and who has largely worked with a traditional weaving technique, with embroidery, and she has embroidering both the mythologies and the geopolitical histories of the Sami people, the people of the north, most of them reindeer herders, and uh, depicting both the landscapes, the natural and animal uh, presences with a lot of detail and also the Sami, we see these little faces of men with these red hats um, in, in her work. And uh, they look like they're descending into the water as we're literally like, almost crossing the scene like the reindeers. Uh, they're kind of completely traversing so it's like the Sami people are kind of within, within the water or within the fields. They are, um, some of them, they almost seem like cartoons or they could be almost the script for a film because you could see their gestures and how, and, and how they are surprising exactly because you were not expecting to see these uh, Sami people swimming in the water and cr having the reindeer crossing the landscapes and being exactly part of an ecology where we understand that landscape people, animals, cosmologies, they are all part of the same of the same ecosystem. We've got a couple of other works as well, which are younger artists, but I mean, really pushing uh, in interesting ways. So like Amalia Pica and then Paloma Vargas Weiss, which is totally also about transformation. But Amalia Pica is quite a complex work because it's about communication systems. But I mean, it's Yerkish, isn't it, this installation? And you've, you've worked with Amalia. So Amalia Pica made a series of works inspired by animal behavior and in particular ape behavior because she was invited by a primatologist who's the head of evolutionary anthropology at University College in London who by coincidence also collaborated with another artist in the exhibition, Marcus Coates. And um, Volker Sommer, who's the name of, of this person, invited Amalia to be artist in residence in um, a research station that University College has in Nigeria and which he uh, leads called the Gashaka Primate Project. And while Amali was there, she was fascinated by the whole history of human-ape relationship that was written through uh, the history of scientific uh, research. And Yerkish is let's say, the major work that comes out of, of that experience in which she was very interested in a language which is an ideogram language that was invented by an American researcher called Robert Yerkes, hence the name Yerkes. And um, this language was made to allow scientists to communicate with chimpanzees. And, uh, and through the invention of this language, uh, it was discovered, and it was a discovery that 
managed to convince a large part of the scientific community of the communication possibilities of chimpanzees and of the possibilities that chimpanzees and large apes have of expressing their thoughts in a verbal manner because um, they, they could express sadness, happiness, desires. A very famous sentence was whenever one of the chimpanzees that Robert Yerkes had in his lab, whenever she wanted to go out, she would make the sign saying, please open hurry, um, and uh, for, for him to open the, the doors of the place where she was. And, uh, and not only could they learn the language, but also they could transmit the language to their offspring. And their offspring would learn much faster from uh, the parents than from the humans who were teaching them. And so this allowed for a whole new discovery of uh, the linguistic possibilities of, of these creatures. I mean, it's quite a mad piece because actually, in a way, what you described is normally like kind of a keyboard or a, like about the size of an A3 side. But actually for Amal, Amal has just created a sculpture that's completely mad for visitors because actually none of the words are sort of there to be explained. Exactly. And actually the only creature that could read the big sculpture that Amalia created would be a chimpanzee. <laughs> so we can't read them, but the chimpanzee would be there and would be able to understand that the first sentence that is written on the right side of the sculpture actually says, uh, visitor, look, picture, please. And so um, it is very, I believe it's very interesting that um, there is an artist who's making a work who's actually full access is only possible to an animal and not to a human. So one of the really ambitious uh, works that we're staging here is Alora and Calzadilla's Hope Hippo, um, which is, a, you know, it's a clay sculpture, but it's also like a performed work. It, those artists are interested in kind of um, creating like a kind of warning sign. I mean, literally that idea of whistleblowing. Tell us about Hope Hippo. You know, the interesting thing about Hope Hippo by Alora and Calzadilla is the fact that when they first made it, which was from, for the Venice Biennial of like 12 years ago, they were putting in evidence a figure that is now a major figure for a political scene, which is that of the whistleblower. So in recent years, we had different from Edward Snowden and so on and so forth. We had different figures who were single individuals who decided to expose themselves and to denounce situations that they found they found problematic. Um, and when they originally made the sculpture, they were actually and um, concretely creating a whistleblower way before um, we mainstream press was talking about whistleblowers. And um, so the, the sculpture consists of a large scale, a real one-to-one -one scale of a hippo uh, made of clay. So paying tribute or mocking almost to the tradition of monumental sculptures in which we generally have a beautiful horse standing on two hooves with uh, a glorious military or a glorious political figure standing on top of it. And instead here we have this hippo that is clumsy, it's sleeping on the floor with a clay that is cracking, so it's not even uh, an impeccable sculpture, it's a sculpture that is cracking. And, um, and the hippo uh, works as a support for 
uh, a performer who was standing, uh, sitting on top of the hippo, reading the daily newspaper. And whenever they encounter a situation and news that they consider problematic, um, and it's a highly subjective decision, so it's really relying on their own choices, they are asked to blow on a whistle. I believe there will be a lot of whistle blowing these days. Um, Coming up for an election, remember? So <laughs> there's a lot of fake news moving around. Exactly. And this is a work, once more, in which hippo and performer establish an alliance with one another, uh, in which the, together they are denouncing the wrongdoings of the world and, um, and inviting visitors to um, consider the potential of monumental public sculpture in a different manner, which is a more active, engaging, lively and politically aware way. This was done in 2005. It feels incredibly more, even more relevant, doesn't it? In terms of the kind of wider conversation around sixth extinctions, just the idea of um, our awareness of, uh, of, 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 you know, of climate crisis. Uh, it works, operates in an interesting way. That's why it was such a visionary work when they made it, because it was almost announcing the years to come and the conditions that we are living now in which we're very aware of how uh, the earth is changing, how climate is changing, and it's as if they created already this union with an animal to, so that together human and animal could be engaging in an active way in denouncing the problems of the world. So what do you think are the ideas of kind of affirmative action that we can take from this exhibition? The exhibition is inviting visitors to reconsider their own existence in the world, they, the way they relate to other life forms, or they consider what animals or in general nature is, inviting them to understand that they are part of nature, that we are part of nature, that culture and nature are actually very, very close by and they're part of the same um, ecosphere in which we live, um, is inviting uh, visitors to consider the forms of solidarity and the forms of union that can be established exactly in this world between different different creatures. And while there are some works that are slightly gloomy and darker, because I think it's also important to reveal the darker side, um, the exhibition tends to be um, optimistic and also joyful, celebrating this coexistence that has been going on for so long. And while addressing some critical uh, topics of the present, being that of uh, colonial occupation or the results of natural events that let, lead to catastrophes, also um, inviting visitors to act in a positive manner. So. Ho Tzu Nyan, it's actually kind of pretty much the first time it's had a proper showing of anything, I think, in the UK. Just in a way, that's a very complex, powerful video. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Two or Three Tigers. Um, it's interesting because it just crosses history and it puts together a story about something that probably people know nothing about. Hotsunyen's Two or Three Tigers is also actually talking about a history that concerns the United Kingdom very much because he is looking at the history of the foundation of Singapore 
Singapore that um, lays in the Malay Peninsula, which was British territory at the time it was created. And he, was, he is looking at this history exactly departing from a key work for the art history of Singapore, which is a print that depicts the moment in which uh, George Coleman, who was by then the superintendent for public works in Singapore, was with a group of convict workers creating the roads that would then allow for the construction of modern Singapore. And while they're cleaning the jungle, a tiger jumps out of, of the bushes and jumps on top both of Coleman, of the group of convicts, and also of the measuring instrument they used, which is a, it's called a theodolite, it's a compass, mm -hmm. uh, which is very similar to the instrument that modern topographers mm -hmm. use. And so with this gesture, the tiger seems to be both concretely, but also symbolically uh, trying to prevent the mapping, the transformation of this territory, the union between technology and humans to just uh, eliminate the territory where the tiger and the deer, which the tiger needs to live on, uh, live. And exactly, it was this transformation of the territory of Singapore that um, led to the quasi-extinction of tigers in the Malay Peninsula. At the same time, what Ho Tsun Yen decided to do was to be inspired by this story, but then also use a very important tradition of Southeast Asian um, folk, and which is the figure of the were-tiger. Were-tigers, similar to werewolves, they are uh, individuals who have the capacity to turn into tigers through processes of trance and through shamanistic rituals. And there is a strong belief across Southeast Asia on the strength and powers of the were tigers. So Ho Tsun Yen imagines this relation between the tiger and the occupier Coleman in a process in which one and the other, one becomes the other, and they are in a sort of opera, operatic dialogue in which gradually, suspended in space, gradually they be metamorphose, they change one into the other. It, it's like a kind of pulsing heartbeat, so it's almost like going inside the head of the other. It's a very strong piece. It's also one of the darkest pieces of the, of the exhibition because these two characters are suspended in a dark atmosphere. Ho Tsun Yen tried to imagine what would be the voice of a tiger if a tiger could speak. And so it's a non-human voice that is also unsettling. But it has a fantastic nature and it's technically so well made as well. That it is an extraordinary immersive journey into another history and, and history that ironically also concerns us so here. So we came along to, we, and we got involved in t uh, collaborating with Umiya Bildmuzet uh, and uh, this particular show. And then, so it's been a fantastic thing to be able to get, to kind of find a way of, of moving it uh, from, from Bildmuzet uh, to here. I mean, what's, what's, what's it been like for you in terms of being able to get it here and be able to get it to a UK audience? It's great fun to reimagine an exhibition and rethink how the exhibition can come together in a different context where some works 
are more meaningful here than there because they speak to local histories more. Um, and also thinking of a completely different system of circulation and occupation of the space. Um, because exactly the two museums are, are quite different. It has also been a challenge to think how the different traditions of art history and the different canons of exhibitions are here, are emerging here. For instance, I'm very curious how the works of Paloma Vargavais will resonate with the whole tradition of British medieval sculpture, or how an artist who is better known in the UK, such as Marcus Coates, um, how his work will resonate with visitors. And then we had the privilege of uh, collaborating specifically for this exhibition with Chris Watson, who is also, um, also very known in, in the area. And Chris was very generous to welcome our proposal of uh, including a sound work that will appear almost like a an echo of the animals he recorded. So I think these were some of the privileged um, possibilities that rethinking the exhibition for the Baltic allowed us to do. Well, thanks for bringing it here. It's been <laughs> fantastic to have it. I think, I think visitors are going to really enjoy it, but it's, there's, a, there's a density and a richness, and we talked a lot about that idea of transformation, which I think people will start to get once they get into it. But yeah, thanks very much for thank bringing you. it here. <laughs>